Well, we are in the final study in the Olivet Discourse, a four-part study. This is the fourth study. And as we've done with each of the last two, it's important, maybe you haven't been with us, to just recap a little flyby of where we're at within this incredible sermon uh, that Jesus gave his disciples dealing with a question, a singular question that the disciples asked Jesus. It's Tuesday, his week of passion. On Thursday night, Friday, he will die for the sins of the world. That Sunday, he will be resurrected. The previous Sunday, it was his triumphal entry. It's, a, it's, it's the week that changed the world, and we're in the Tuesday. It's in the evening. Jesus and his disciples are kicking back on the Mount of Olives, the western slope, looking out at the city. They ask, what will be the sign of your coming, Jesus, and of the end of the age? And... The Olivet Discourse is a sermon, a teaching that Jesus provides to answer that particular question. Now, he starts his sermon by explaining a series of events that Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows. Now, this isn't the ultimate answer to their question. They're wanting a sign, a singular event that will mark his coming and the end of the age. Jesus begins by kind of laying out the beginnings of labor pains, the things that start the process. They're not the sign but they kind of rev the the engine. They get things moving a particular direction. Jesus begins by saying that there's going to be a great deceiver who will rise to power, the Antichrist. And though he will promise peace, Jesus also says that what will be produced or yielded from his reign will be nothing but war, a great war that will produce a depressed global system filled with inflation and famine and pestilence. The first three and a half years of a period of seven years of tribulation, according to this sermon, will be fierce. But then Jesus, as he continues through this discourse, explains, he gets to their answer by explaining what sign will trigger the end. Jesus says, and we looked at extensively last Sunday, that at the three and a half year mark, the Antichrist will enter the temple located there in Jerusalem, a temple yet still to be built, and he will commit what Daniel the prophet describes prophetically as, quote, an abomination of desolation, or an act of abomination that yields nothing but desolation. And it's from this, this act where the Antichrist comes into the temple and hails himself as God to be worshipped as God by the peoples of the world. Paul writes extensively about it. A mass exodus will ensue from Judea where the Jews finally see the Antichrist for what he is, a replacement Christ, and they see Jesus for who he is, the real Christ. And they leave Judea. They flee into the wilderness. They escape what then ends up being yielded, a massive global persecution of anyone that follows Jesus. And it's from this that during the second half of this tribulational period, this final three and a half years, that an even greater period of tribulation will follow. One that's literally triggering the full wrath of God. Jesus says that, quote, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, 
The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then Jesus will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest parts of the earth and the farthest parts of heaven. Jesus, no doubt, describing what we find in the book of Revelation, and that being these bold judgments. Everything during the seven years of tribulation will build to one final crescendo when Jesus comes back. And he comes back to not only destroy the armies of the Antichrist, but in fulfilling so much of the Old Testament prophecy concerning this coming king, Jesus will restore a broken planet. You know, we look around the globe, and yes, we see pollution. We see the effects of sometimes inappropriate policies that ravage the earth. We should be conservational as Christians. We should take care and be a good steward of the earth God gave us a dominion over, and yet we should know that no matter what we do, there is an ultimate result. This world will be on fire. And it will be at the brink of destruction until Jesus, not just the redeemer of us, but the redeemer of this planet comes back and he restores the earth to his design. It's during this time where he establishes a kingdom that the lion will lie with the lamb that will finally reach this utopia, justice, peace. It'll be an incredible time where Jesus fully restores life as it were in a garden. It's been said that things began in a garden, but will end in a great city. And it will be during this thousand years where Jesus rules and reigns on earth that Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit. It'll be an incredible season. Well, Mark chapter 13, verse 28, we we begin to look at the end of this discourse. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also... When you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, the first thing you should note concerning this section of Scripture is that Jesus is clearly transitioning his sermon to a final conclusion. This word now is the Greek conjunction day, D-E. It it means but or moreover, nevertheless, yet or then. Luke chapter 21, verses 28 and 29, uh, Luke's account of the same sermon, he adds another bit of information that kind of helps with the transition. Luke says, now when these things begin to happen, Jesus speaking, look up and lift your heads because your redemption draws near. Then he spoke to them a parable. Jesus has just finished a lesson on the tribulational period, the quote, end of the age. He's described 
his second coming, the establishment of his kingdom. And as with any good preacher and any good sermon, which on a side note, even in, in, in Bible college, you will take the Olivet Discourse and you'll actually break it down, not for its subject matter, but for its presentation, the outline, the way Jesus ends up communicating this message or teaches a sermon is used as a great template. Provide your points, end with an exhortation, conclude with a benediction as Jesus is doing. And note that this benediction, this exhortation, this final word, as Jesus is wrapping things up, contains an application for the disciples. Secondly, the other thing you should note is that the context for his application for the disciples begins, well, it begins with our understanding of the fig tree. Now, please note that in the Old Testament, we find the fig tree as a picture, a Polaroid, a snapshot, used for the nation of Israel. In Judges 9, verses 10 and 11, we're told, Then the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over other trees? In context, the fig tree is being presented as a picture, a type of the nation of Israel. Hosea 9, verse 10. The prophet says, I found Israel. Like grapes in the wilderness, I saw you fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. In the Old Testament, the presentation of a fig tree, it was always an allegory, a presentation of the nation of Israel. Anytime you saw the fig tree, the lesson below the surface was always about Israel. And it would appear that Jesus reinforces this typographical picture in Mark chapter 11. Now, you don't have to turn there, but let me give you a little play-by-play. Because the day before this, Monday, Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. As he's making his way into the city, you know, his tummy's growling. Mickey D's has yet to do breakfast all day. And so Jesus is kind of like, you know what? I'm hungry, I'm going to grab a fig. So he sees this fig tree. And it looks as though the fig tree has fruit, but as he gets closer, it doesn't. So Jesus does what any rational person would do. He curses the tree, right? Now understand, this was not an accident. The fig tree represented Israel. And in condemning this tree, he was condemning the religious hypocrisy he saw permeating the nation of Israel. In a sense, Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, this whole religious system, it had been advertising spiritual fruit that it didn't actually possess. The nation presented an outward image of holiness. When in reality, the nation lacked any true substance. Jesus would call these religious leaders whitewashed tombs. They looked pretty on the outside, but inside they were dead, full of dead men's bones. And so Jesus curses this fig tree. They come back later in the day. They see that it's withered. 
Jesus presents a lesson to the disciples, speaking of the nation of Israel, that he would curse the nation. And it would be the result of this curse that would ultimately yield the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. If the fig tree represented Israel and Jesus curses the tree, you come back and the tree's withered. Jesus is prophetically through this act, making it clear to the disciples that his blessing on the nation is being removed or will be removed. That what was healthy, what was growing, what had at least an image of vitality would be revoked and it would produce nothing but, but desolation, it would destruction, it would dry up. Because Israel, the ultimate refusal of God's work and her life resulted in the rejection of Jesus, God would then use the Roman invasion of 70 AD to enact a form of divine retribution. And just the same way that he had judged the northern kingdom through the Assyrians and then the southern kingdom with the Babylonians, he's now judging Judea, Israel, with the Romans, this conquest, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. At 70 AD, it's a truth of history, that Israel as a nation ceased to be. Whoever was left was scattered. And God prophetically turned his attention to the church. God's involvement with the Jewish people gave way to what's described as the times of the Gentiles, the church age. And yet, what's fascinating is that from this prophecy, at the end of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus seems to be prophetically mentioning something that the disciples would have connected to what had just happened the day before. He cursed the fig tree and it was cursed. But now, at the end of this sermon, Jesus is saying what? That the fig tree will bloom again. He seems to be presenting the re-emergence of the nation of Israel as being a main indicator that everything he's previously discussed would soon take place. So they ask, what's the sign of your coming, the end of the age? Jesus goes through this whole sermon leading up to the beginning of sorrows, the ultimate sign, the abomination of desolation, culminating in his second coming. He answers their questions. Now as he transitions to the end, the application, Jesus says, now know this, that when you see the fig tree bloom again, the time is near. Look again, verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch becomes tender and puts forth leaves. No, still no fruit. Know that summer is near. Also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the door. Speaking of what uh, in context it is, everything he's previously discussed in answering this question concerning the end of the age and his coming. It would seem from this passage that Jesus is telling the disciples in the church that when you see Israel blossom again, when you see Israel reemerge onto the world scene, this is to be a sign from God to planet earth, that time is short, that things are prophetically moving to an ultimate culmination, that a tribulational period, a time of judgment will follow. Now, this idea 
of the nation of Israel, of, of the Jewish people coming back to their homeland is not an outlandish idea when it comes to Old Testament prophecy. It's mentioned extensively, this idea of the nation of Israel, which has been dormant for some almost 2,000 years, reemerging. It's not an, an abnormal concept. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet describes uh, the, the dry bones coming back to life, the reemergence of the Jewish people. Zechariah 8 and Isaiah 51 talk about a worldwide return of the Jews to their homeland. Like, understand that the rebirth of Israel is not only important for its historical significance. You realize, like, never before in the history of the planet has a group of people been out of their homeland for such a length of time, only for then, them to return and their nation pop back up again. And the fact that Hebrew, which had been a dead, dormant language, reemerges and is now being spoken again in a place where it hadn't been for some thousands of years. Like, it is a historical marvel. And yet, because the nation of Israel, the rebirth of Israel, because of this prophecy, it indicates the soon transitioning of a prophetic timeline off of the church, time of the Gentiles, and back onto the Hebrew people for 1,878 years. It's a long time. Beginning with the Roman invasion, Titus Vespasian in 70 AD, the Jews existed only in isolated communities throughout both the Middle East and most of Europe. And yet, while you could say at one point that the fig tree lay dormant, something began to happen the last century. On November 2nd, 1917, the roots of the fig tree began to take in nourishment. Nothing had popped through the surface yet, but the UK's foreign secretary, a man by the name of Arthur James Balfour, issued an important declaration that permitted the formation of a Jewish state. As we know today as the Balfour Declaration, it was stated, quote, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jew Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in other countries. Now, it's sad, but because of mounting political opposition before and directly following World War II, the Brits, they kind of reneged on their promise of allowing the Jews to return to their homeland by drastically restricting the number of Jews they allowed to immigrate to Palestine. However, Following World War II, the United States' moral position in the world at the time and the revelation of what the Nazis had done to the Jewish people through the Holocaust. In 1947, really led by the United States, the United Nations proposed the establishment of Arab and Jewish states in Palestine. 
on May 14, 1948, and that's in a very important day in history, prophetically. Two important events align perfectly. One, England lifted their naval blockades, effectively ending their mandated restriction of Jewish immigrants. So the Brits would allow anyone to come in. And two, the United Nations proclaimed something very incredible. They proclaimed a newly formed state of Israel. The fig tree blossomed. Now, one day later, for you history buffs, on May 15th, this newly established state of Israel was invaded by the surrounding Arab countries, starting what's known today as the War of Independence. In one moment, the budding tree could have been cut down, and yet she supernaturally survived. In July 1949, Israel, as a result of the War of Independence and their victory, signed what's known as an armistice agreement with Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, ending the war. And this led to the formation of the first Knesset, Israel being self-governing and being admitted as the 59th member of the United Nations. Now, and this is important, though at this point, July 1949, the fig tree is not just born, it's budding. The capital city of Jerusalem still remained divided under both Israeli and Jordanian rule as part of the armistice agreement. Now, now that seems like a side note, but that'll play an important role in where we're going with this. Then in 1967, Israel was attacked again by the Arabs in what was called the Six-Day War. It was a surprise attack. But Israel not only survived, as a result, she gained territory, massive amounts of Arab territory, which resulted in the unifying of Jerusalem under Israeli control. Now, it's true that the Palestinians still have uh, uh, control over the Temple Mount, but that's specifically because the, the Jews have given it to them. But Israel fully controls Jerusalem, and that happened as a result of the, the Six-Day War of 1967. Now, this all gets important as far as the dating goes. We'll see it. Now, Though most pre-tribulationalists and premillennialists agree with the significance of Jesus' prediction of Israel's reemergence from the ashes of history, one of the most interesting components of the whole discussion and biggest hang-ups that people have with the passage we just read, which is very controversial, is what Jesus just said. Look at it again. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you this generation. Speaking of the generation that sees the budding of the fig tree will by no means pass away till all of these things take place. So what Jesus is saying is that the generation that sees the budding of the fig tree will see everything else he's talked about. Rapture of the church, the great tribulation, the abomination of desolation, his second coming, the, the millennial reign, that that generation that sees Israel reemerge will see these things happen. And over the last 60 years, many well-intentioned pastors and scholars, and for full disclosure, many of which happen to be in the Calvary Chapel movement, have seen this verse 
as validation that the generation that sees Israel's reemergence will also see the great tribulation and should be ready for the rapture of the church. Well, and since we know as a fact of history that Israel reemerged in 1948, many well-intentioned pastors have gotten into the business of prediction making, date setting. And let me kind of explain generally how this works. First, based upon this verse, these pastors seek to interpret a generation as being a collective age group of people. And that makes sense, right? A, the next generation. You know, a specific age group of people. And, and then this is what they do. Since Israel became a nation in 1948, and they believe that a generation is a specific age group of people, they believe that specific age group of people will be around to see the end time scenario unfold. So, the big question would be, how does, a, how does the Bible define a generation? Because if you can figure out the number of years in a generation, then you can extrapolate that out to pinpoint Jesus' second coming. And since we know the rapture of the church will happen at least seven years before Jesus' second coming, you can also pinpoint when the rapture will happen as well. This is the whole thought process in the 70s. There were many who concluded that the biblical definition of a generation was 40 years. 40-year generation. So you take 1948, you add 40 years, because Jesus said, this generation, right? And this led many to believe and to proclaim that Jesus would return. The battle of Armageddon would happen in 1988 which means, since the church won't be around and take seven years back, that the rapture will happen in 1981. Now, in 1978, for full admission, Calvary Chapel's founding pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, wrote a book titled In Times, in which he fell prey to this thought process, predicting that the rapture would happen in 1981 popular American evangelist and Christian author who's not Calvary Chapel, a man by the name of Hal Lindsey, also made the same prediction in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. In 1980, Pastor Chuck even reiterated these convictions in a manuscript titled Future Survival. He said, quote, I am convinced the Lord will come for his church before the end of 1981, identifying that he, quote, could be wrong, but it was a deep conviction in his heart, and all his plans were predicated upon that belief. I don't, I don't like news, news flash. <laughs> it didn't happen, which I'm very thankful for because I was born in '83. <laughs> I would have, I would not just miss, miss the, like, man, would have been a bad thing for me. So it was like it was really egg on the face of a lot of these pastors, right? I mean, you're going to go out there say, Jesus is coming in 81. And 81 comes and goes, and it's, it's 82, and that didn't happen. Like, that's, that's embarrassing. So you have one of two options. You can say, should not have done that. Sorry, we got to get out of the date-setting business. 
Um, they went with the other option, which was like, well, we had to have had generation wrong or something else. Okay, it, 1948, that was our problem. Because while the fig tree bloomed, right, Jerusalem wasn't actually part of Israel until when? 1967. And so because Jerusalem now gets unified with the rest of the nation in 67, not 48, we just got our date wrong. So we need to take 1967 and add 40 years to it, which means Jesus returns, the second coming, will happen 2007. Because the rapture, ha rapture happened seven years earlier, the rapture has to occur when? Pfft, makes total sense. 2000. Y2K. Seriously, there were people that like were waiting around thinking this is going down today, baby. The world's crashing to it. Spoiler alert didn't happen. Now, now, now understand there are two problems taking this particular approach. First, it's a misconception to equate generation as being 40 years. Yes, it is true that the Bible in certain passages does equate a generation as to being 40 years, but there are other instances where the Bible defines a generation as being less than 40 years and longer than 40 years. Like, the, the generation of Israelites that roamed the wilderness, that generation was not 40 years. It was 38. It was a 38-year generation. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 15, a generation is actually defined as 100 years. So we don't know how long a generation happens to be. The other problem taking this particular approach is that I think we make a... a, a we misdefine what the word generation means. Like I, the word generation, the word Jesus uses, it doesn't mean a collective age group of people. As a matter of fact, generation, which has this, this Greek word gina in it, can be understood not as an, an age group, but a race of people, which kind of changes the whole way you look at what Jesus is saying, right? that this race will by no means pass away. David Guzik, commenting on this passage, he says concerning this point, this may be a promise given by Jesus that the Jewish race will not perish before history comes to a conclusion. As a promise that when the fig tree buds, don't look for it to be destroyed again before these things take place. Sadly, though, the act of setting a definitive date for the rapture dates that have obviously been proven false, have had several negative consequences. First, it's caused many Christians more recently to dismiss anyone who has this pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Because of date setting, many of us who hold to this interpretation are described as being Looney Tune, date-setting, doomsday preppers, more interested in leaving planet Earth than reaching a fallen planet for the gospel, that we're accused of being escapists. It's also, the other negative effect is that it's, it's kind of caused the world to paint Christians who believe 
in the rapture, a literal pre-tribulational rapture of the church as being uh, wingnuts, you know, as being a few fries short of a full Happy Meal, you know, like that if you like all, if you really honestly believe that, that there's going to come a, 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 a moment, da, 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 boom, you all disappear. Uh, maybe you should all disappear because you're weird. That you're just non-rational. Like it, when you get people who jump out there and date set, don't you cringe? I do. Like more recently, remember 2011, Harold Camping? Man, that got like Kardashian level press. I mean, that joker was everywhere. And then no doubt when it didn't happen, ah, ha, 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 you stupid Christians. And it's like, I had nothing to do with that. That guy was stupid, not me. You know, thirdly, like kind of the cumulative effect of the first two points. You know what it's done? And I think this is a negative effect because sadly, uh, we seem to be classified if we hold to this position as irrational kind of crazies. And that's kind of how we get hedged with the world. One of the negative results of that is that most pastors today are not doing what I'm doing right here. They're not. They're not talking about the rapture of the church. Like that's not seeker friendly. That's weirdo attraction. Like that's, like it just seems so, like you also believe in aliens? That's cool. Like you waiting for the hellbop comet? Like it just seems, it seems like when we start talking about the rapture of the church because the way the world has kind of classified that, most people kind of feel like, all right, when is the Kool-Aid going to get passed around? And yet, and yet that's, that's tragic. And I'll get to why that's tragic in a moment. But, but fourthly, I think the other negative result is that it's kind of actually tarred the public image of many solid, godly, wonderful Bible teachers. Like Pastor Chuck's one of my heroes. Date setting by Pastor Chuck was stupid. He admitted that it was stupid. He actually said that because of the embar embarrassments of the early 80s, that he should have just kept to expositional teaching of the Bible and stayed away from the prediction-making business. I'd agree with that. I think that that would probably have been a good strategy. And yet, tragically, that one mistake by Pastor Chuck has led to many people to classify the Calvary Chapel movement as also being kind of crazy people. Like in, in a sermon on the Olivet Discourse, by a pastor who's no longer pastoring, Mark Driscoll, kind of a church celebrity, um, until it kind of all blew up in his face, but that's another topic. And in a sermon he gave on this, uh, this section of scripture, he said this to his congregation, former congregation, quote, are you overly concerned with the details of Jesus's return? There was a great outpouring and movement of the Holy Spirit in the 60s and 70s called the Jesus Movement, Calvary Chapel. It was amazing. It was a miracle of God. A whole generation just seemed to get captured with the love of Jesus in mass. Hippies and drug addicts and people who were sexually wayward met Jesus, and there was a radical number of salvations. 
a huge number of young people became Christians. Nonetheless, what happened with the Jesus movement is, I believe, Mark Driscoll speaking, that it got off track and off course. People started to get really fascinated with the rapture and the end times and the second coming and all of these things. And all of a sudden, there was a love for Jesus, but there was more of a fascination around dates and times, events, and circumstances. All of a sudden, leaders began making predictions about when Jesus will return and the signs accompanying his coming. They were taking the Bible and taking the nightly news and combining them together. And it led to a short-sightedness. Some key leaders, even some who love Jesus and are brothers in Christ, started predicting the end of the world and sending their followers into a frenzy. None of that's helpful. Are you overly interested, concerned, consumed with the details of his return? Are you reading too many books about the end of the world and neglecting the needs of the world? Are you trying to predict things when Jesus says elsewhere, no one knows the day or the hour? Are you overly concerned? Some of you are overly concerned and obsessed with the details and have, gone, and have very strong opinions about the things that have not yet happened. That's going too far. Now, I totally understand Mark's exhortation and criticism. And in some ways, I would agree with the mistakes of a previous generation of church leaders who fell prey to prediction making. And yet, I could not disagree more with his core premise that we shouldn't be deeply concerned and excited and expectant for the imminent return of Jesus. I think he goes too far the other way. And I think it's sad that I might be the only pastor this morning in like a hundred mile radius that's talking about the rapture of the church this morning. Because I think that there's an element, as we looked at when we examined Jesus's letter to the church of Philadelphia, where a healthy expectation of the rapture is what makes us faithful. You know, the reality of Scripture is that the imminency of a future rapture of the church and the end time scenarios that follows is such a foundational, principled doctrine presented in the New Testament. And this might shock some of you, that its concepts are presented in one out of every 10 verses in the New Testament. If you ignore teaching the rapture of the church, you're ignoring a tenth of the New Testament. You can't faithfully teach the Bible and not faithfully present this exhortation. And beyond that, I think it's silly for Christians to ignore something that Jesus Christ himself exhorted us to both watch and pray for that of his coming. Verse 32. Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Now, then we need to answer a question. What day is Jesus referring to? Like, obviously that's important for our understanding of what he's saying. Because he's saying, of that day, no one knows the day or the hour. So what day is it? And there seems to be three subtle clues. First, it's a day, obviously, that no one can predict, right? Jesus says that. 
according to Daniel's prophecies. Seven years of tribulation begin with the signing of a false peace. So I'll know that day. And then because I know that day, I can also extrapolate out seven years. So I also know the day of his second coming. And because at the three and a half year mark, you have the abomination of desolation. So I, I also know that day. So understand that eliminates the second coming and the abomination as being this day. No one can predict it. Two, we also note from this, the, this simple verse that it's a day whereby Jesus promises escape from judgment. In Luke chapter 21, verses 34 and 36, Luke adds an amendment to the statement. He says, but take heed to yourselves, Jesus speaking, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now one can reason that this also now eliminates the beginning of a tribulational period. Because he's saying, of this day, no one knows, and what follows is tribulation. And in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, we're told, for God did not appoint us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from wrath to come. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so this day, no one can predict, it's a day that provides escape from judgment. And thirdly, it's a day that Jesus exhorts his disciples to be prepared for. Like Jesus' entire sermon has been addressing the church. No, it's been addressing God's future dealings with Israel. The disciples don't even know that the church is coming. It's still yet a foreign concept. But according to Luke, in this instance, Jesus distinctly personalizes his exhortation to watch and pray that you, so he does something interesting, Jesus. He's talking about the nation of Israel, but then, according to Luke, he personalizes it to his disciples. Watch and pray that you, my disciples, may be counted worthy to escape these things. Look at verse 33 of chapter 13. Continuing on, Jesus says, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Matthew, on a side note, fills in a detail that the conditions of this day will be similar to what was in the day of Noah. That this day would be, back to our text, like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midday, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly... He find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now, I'm convinced that this day, that the only day that fits Jesus' descriptions and remains consistent with the rest of Scripture is the rapture of the church. A day no one can predict. A day whereby Jesus promises escape from judgment. A day that the disciples should be actively prepared and watching for. 
So in conclusion, let's kind of tie this all together. Though no man knows when the day or the hour will happen where Jesus calls the church to himself, and it's total silly and nonsense for us to exercise uh, date predictions. It does seem this whole passage to indicate that the reemergence of the nation of Israel, and we don't know what the generation concept means, if that sets a time frame, but it does serve nonetheless as a radical, critical indicator that time is short, that Jesus is coming is nigh. He says, when the fig tree blossoms, things are at the door. And he exhorts his followers to be ready for the master's return. Let's consider this final parable in light of the rapture. While Jesus is away, he is what? He's given authority to whom? To his servants, you and I, with the specific commission to do what? To faithfully fulfill, quote, each his work. Before leaving, Jesus gave authority to the church, to his servants. Jesus, the master of the house, has commissioned. That word commissioned, it's kind of a fancy word we don't use. I, I, I like it more presented as, as deputized. Think of Don Knox, you know, being deputized. I'm a deputy. You've been given the authority of the king to be about the king's business. That's what it means. That Jesus has called you and me, but you as well, to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around you. It's not an optional job. It's a calling. It's a commission. You've been deputized. Paul would say, I'm an ambassador. You're an ambassador in a foreign land representing a king and a coming kingdom. That's your role. That's your job. And not only has he, has he called us to that, but he's also equipped us to be able to do that, knowing there's no way we could do it on our own. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He deputizes us, gives us authority, and gives us power. All at your fingertips, all at your disposal. But then also keep in mind, and this is important, that Jesus also gave, quote, to each his work. Do you realize that you have a work to do? You have a work to do so important that Jesus died on the cross to redeem you, to snatch you from this fallen, present, evil world, to fill you with his spirit so that you could accomplish his purposes that Jesus bought you. And this is not that you have to do anything because you don't. But my, my question would be, why wouldn't you want to? Especially in context of someone who would do such a great work for you. But that he's called you and he's commissioned you and he's filled you, but you have a job to do. And we often put in our minds the idea of Christian ministry as what I do at the church. False. Wrong. No. 
Christian ministry is always presented and it's placed in context as what you do when you leave the church. That your job is not just taking care of the babies in nursery, which is an awesome job and important. And if you'd like to volunteer, please talk to me afterwards because we're in need. But it's the idea that you go out there and do ministry, which is why our entire philosophy is that here on Sunday mornings, we teach the Bible so that Jesus can transform you into a whole Christian so that you can go out there and do the job he's called you to do. Are you doing it? Do you even know what it is? A lot of you have been given incredible gifts and abilities, talents. They're not yours. God sovereignly programmed you for them. He wired you for them. Not so that you could just do them to some frivolous end. I'm working at this job for 30 years for my retirement. No, you're working in this job for the next 30 years because Jesus put you there, equipped you to do it, to be a light there. Your retirement's heaven. What's your job? Do you have one? And this is what the rapture is so important about. It's why it's so critical. It's why we should always talk about it and mention it and pray for it and look for it because it should motivate us to be faithful servants because he could come at any moment. That we should be actively prepping, preparing for his return that we might be found as faithful servants about the work of our king. Jesus is coming back. You've been given a job and you've been called. How do you want your king to find you his servant? Where would you not want him to find you? <laughs> what would you be kind of embarrassed for him to find you doing? Like, I don't know. I, I'll just speak personally, and this is not to put a guilt trip on any. I'm just speaking personally. I want when Jesus comes back, like, I want to be doing something. Like, I would like it to be during a Bible study because that's what I'm most equipped and called to be doing. Where it's like, Jesus, you know, da, 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 and it's like, yeah, man, I'm, I was doing it. I was right there, right where you called me to be. Like, I've had this phobia of being on the toilet, you know, and that being like, <laughs> like that for all of eternity. That's my story. Where were you when he called the church? Man, I was, I was on the front lines of the mission field. Man, I was, I was there in Syria telling people about Jesus, and they were about to cut off my head, but ba 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 and I was gone. It was like, ah, suckers, I'm out of here. Like, what were you doing, Zach? <clears throat> well, I had gone to Frontera, man, and like, <laughs> just, it just didn't, like, it's my own phobia. I just want to be found. Do you want to be found faithful? Doing an activity that matters? I do. I do. And I think you do too.